0: G'day, and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r Australian subreddit. I'm DK, and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is the 26th of September, and our topic this week are new ABS data reveals a very worrying, worrying rise, rise in prisoner numbers. And critical minerals, Australia's role and choices in the global green energy sector. I know we've spoken about green energy a fair bit on this, but this is going to be more of a an overview, if you like. Um, and it is quite interesting. So uh, of course, we'll get into our Two Ticks Town Talk this week. It's our Deets turn. And then we'll jump into this week in Australian history. And we'll finish off, as always, with a 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, as always, let's catch up on the last week. What's been going on down in rainy
1: Victoria? <laughs> G'day, DK. I wouldn't mind a little bit more rain. Um I've been getting into chaffles. I don't know if you've heard of uh, chaffles at all. Does that ring a bell?
0: No. What is chaffles?
1: Chaffles are, I've been doing like a low-carb keto style of of diet, and and, oh God, I just miss the bread. And I heard of these things called chaffles. Uh, It comes from a combination of the word cheese and waffles. Basically, you make them in a waffle maker, and you're using uh, grated cheese almond flour, which is um, acceptable on the, the keto thing. It's, it's it's way down low on the carbohydrates. Um, a bit of baking soda and uh, a couple of eggs. Chuck, that makes a batter. Chuck them into the uh, the waffle line and you get these. Uh, I put in a bit of uh, spinach as well with them yeah, to make, yeah. make them savory. And you can sort of have it like a, a bread substitute. You can have your scrambled eggs, poached eggs, because poached eggs is my favourite way to have eggs. But if you don't have it with bread, it sort of I don't know yeah, loses a little th- bit. So
0: yeah, no, I'm totally with you on that. It's yeah, I don't know.
1: You just you
0: need to have the bread for the egg to go on top. Yep.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's been good. I've been experimenting with that. We grabbed a. Um Aldi had a, a sandwich maker and one of the little inserts uh that you can put in there was for, for waffles. So we thought, oh, about time to try it. So I gave the chaffles a a go and I'm pretty happy with them. They stay they stay good, good in the fridge for about a week. I'm trying freezing them. Apparently you can freeze them, they're good for a few months. Um so I'll see how they go on there. But yeah, I really it was good getting back some sort of textural experience.
0: That is, I've never even heard of this, but I might have to give this a try. We, we used to have a waffle maker, right? I don't know if we still got it. I think my wife probably threw it away because it's not something we used very often. It's the sort of thing you use when you first get it. You know, you use it a lot. You get all excited about making waffles and then, <laughs> <laughs> you know, over time you just sort of, you lose the enthusiasm, I guess. Um, but it's it's basically a, a savory waffle. What a good idea.
1: It I mean is, it yeah. Is. yeah, it is a good idea and it's it's low on the, the, the carbs. Um, you know, got a bit of uh got a bit of crunch to it, uh, you yeah, know, depending on how long you, you cook it. Uh, in fact I put it into the I've I take it out of the fridge, um, give it a bit of a, a blast in the, the toaster, chuck some butter on, and uh yeah, it's a pretty decent substitute. I mean nothing substitutes for beautiful bread. But I tell you what, it's pretty bloody close.
0: Yeah. We have a bread maker and I've had to stop using it because fresh bread (laughs) is just so damn delicious. It's so (laughs) so Oh,
1: isn't it?
0: Especially if you set it up the night before when ours has like an eight-hour timer so you can sort of set it, go to sleep, when you wake up. Um, oh. You wake up to the house smelling like fresh bread, <laughs> and the bread is like just you know ready to eat as you as you're sort of getting up, you know, have a shower, getting ready for work, that sort of stuff. You come out and there's fresh bread ready for you, and it's uh, that oh. Oh, it was so good. I've had to stop using it because um, yeah, it's too good. You can't eat that much bread.
1: No, Even though you it, want to, it, it's still gutting it down, throwing a bit of butter on, thinking, oh, I'll just stop at one piece and then three pieces later. You sort of think, Oh, God, that was a mistake, but put it in <laughs> for the next day.
0: So, well, especially because I like to cut a really thick, yep. so you know, you get like an inch thick piece of toast, you know, and yeah, mm. oh, it's just so good. But yes, uh, I had to cut down on the old bread because. Unfortunately. But this that's like a pretty good the uh what are they called? Chaffles. Chaffles, uh, yeah. C-H-A-F-F-L-E-S.
1: double What what have gonna... you been up to? How's your how's your week been?
0: We've been away. We had a little trip away um, into the top of the Mary Valley. So listeners from southeast Queensland will probably know this area quite well because of uh, the towns uh, like Montville and Mullaney. Oh, yeah, Mullaney. Yeah, Mullaney is quite famous. Um, And this is sort of inland from the Sunshine Coast uh, just north of Brisbane uh, in the sort of mountainous region of the area um, and it's it's really beautiful up there and there's a dam up there uh, well it's a natural lake called Lake Barumba but they've dammed it up um, and we were staying just down from the dam at a place called Barumba Deer Park um, and there is a lot of deer in the uh Conondale National Park which is huge uh which is right next to to the, the campground uh and they've actually started to farm some of the deer in the area uh I, I think it's for food I'm not I'm not 100% sure because they are feral feral animals um yeah. but it's nice the kids like it because they go there and there's deer like literally you know there's sort of a, a, a fence a wire fence and then there's a paddock of deer well, you know, probably 50, 60 deer. Yeah. Um, you can yeah. buy deer feed and feed them and stuff like that. So the kids get a real kick out of it, which is nice. Um, oh. So yeah, we had a we had a good little trip, uh, and we got home. And I always turn my water off if we've gone for a couple of days, even though we had the neighbours sort of looking at looking, you know, keeping an eye on the place. Um, it's always good to just just turn the water off. No one's here, doesn't need it. Yep. Uh, And I came home and I first thing I did, unlock the door, walk over uh, to to the mains water, uh, you know, outside the house, turn the handle and the handle snapped.
1: Oh, no.
0: (laughs) The handle snapped. Are you kidding me? It was still off. Uh, but because it's snacked, the little the little ball valve inside that you're you know you're turning, uh, part of the O-ring that attaches to the handle uh, blew out and so now I've got water just shooting, you know, five, God. six meters in the air. Um and I'm standing there holding the handle in one part of my hand, looking at the other part going, oh,
1: oh, 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 no. what the hell just
0: happened? Oh. <laughs> um, so there's water going everywhere, all over my neighbor's place mostly. Uh, and I'm sort of standing there dumbfounded, just like, I can't believe this has happened. Like, I, you know, oh, uh, and yeah. I, I did flip it over and look, and it's very clear because it's a brass casting. And it's very clear that obviously there was a, you know, it, it, didn't cast very well because it was uh, sort of, you know, when metal becomes almost like grainy, like sand. Yep, yep um, you get
1: that high grain in the, the incorrectly cast metal.
0: Yeah, and it was like that. And so I was like, because oh, every time wow. that we do this, um, I've always felt like it's a bit spongier than it should be. And literally, I didn't even put any pressure on it. It just snapped straight off. Like, I didn't turn the water on at all. <laughs> the water oh, was still wow. completely... Thankfully it was on the other side of the meter, so I wasn't paying for the water that was coming out. Um my neighbor's a plumber. I called him uh and he he was at work obviously. Uh and he said to me, Actually in this area it's the local uh like water authority that does it, because it's on the other side of the meter. And I was yeah. like, Cool. So I gave them a call. They were here within fifteen minutes. Uh and they they got it fixed within probably ten. And so we're that's back up and running. interesting.
1: Your your tap to turn the mains on or off is on the street side of the meter.
0: Yes. Yes. Wow.
1: Ours is on the ours is on the property side of the meter.
0: See, you'd think it would be like that, but I don't know why it's not. But yeah, um, the fifteen
1: minutes is. So continue with your, your, your story. That just that's interesting. That little little difference. So they're there in fifteen minutes.
0: Yeah, they were here really really quickly um like we hadn't even started unpacking the 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 ute or the camper uh and so i just sort of plotted along while i was they were at the front uh doing that and he said he yelled out you might get a bit wet and i sort of looked and was like of course they don't have a way to shut the water off the obviously uh and so when they pulled the old uh sort of elbow off, you know, the full ball of that pipe is now just blowing, blasting into the sky. They were oh. really quick about it, though, but it was pretty spectacular to see. And then they're shoving the new one on. The apprentice got absolutely soaked. He didn't look very, like he was very impressed, but I guess that's, you know, that's his wow. job. He probably does it all day. So um, they were very quick, very professional, excellent. Didn't cost me anything. I mean, I probably pay enough rates, so that's...
1: Yeah, 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 um, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> hopefully included in it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly so Um, and now we got a nice shiny brand new valve so hopefully this one will last a lot longer than the last one Um, so yeah it was one of those paranoid
1: if you feel any sponginess.
0: (laughs) Yeah I said I'm not (laughs) going to touch it for now he did I said to the plumber I explained what had happened and he, he said to me you know that's the right thing to do he's like you're way better off you know turning it off. And if this happens, just giving us a call or whatever, you know, you don't not turn it off because you're worried that this is going to happen again yeah, just because yeah. it's much, much better for you if, um, you know, in the event something happens. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. So, so why,
1: why do you turn it off out of interest?
0: So I always turn it off because I had a few clients. So for our uh, for our casual listeners that don't know, I work in financial services and part of that is in insurance. And I've had a number of clients that have gone away, even for just a couple of days, and they've had uh, a lot of interior plumbing fittings for like a water filter or like a plumbed in your fridge or something like that. And just what we call push fittings. So they just, um, you sort of push them in into the fitting and then oh, yeah. as the pressure as you sort of, it's a bit like those, uh, uh, finger traps, the paper finger traps yep. where you can put your finger yep. in, but you can't pull it out. It's basically the same thing. Um, but they can wear out over time. And the other thing that often happens, so that, that's the thing that does happen. It's not as common, but it, it definitely does happen. Um, the other one that is way more common is those braided cables under your sink that attach your taps to the mains. Which they're like a apparently
1: rubber... a crap.
0: Yeah, they're absolute crap. They only last yeah. generally about five years. I, um,
1: I only found that out because look before I had found this out and some other things they had to do with, with plumbing. I always looked to those and I thought, oh, I can see where they use them. They look like they, they're super powerful and braided metal and that they must wear. And someone, the, the bloke down at the plumbing store where I was talking about, that's, oh, yeah, oh and yeah, make sure you don't use those, those braided ones. You only get about five years out of them. And I was astounded. Yep,
0: they're absolute crap. Um, so those really commonly burst. Hmm. And it always seems to happen when you're not home. Um or <laughs> yeah. you know, like in the middle of the night or something like that. They often they often uh get like a because uh, it's it's a rubber hose surrounded by like a braided metal cable. So they feel a lot sturdier than they are. Um and over time that rubber, you know, as rubber does, it can sort of wear out, get old and crack. Yeah. And you'll have you'll what you'll find is you'll have almost like a pinhole and it'll just be spraying water out a tiny amount. You won't even see it, but you'll see it getting in. And, you know, most kitchens are made out of melamine, which is like a, a an MDF-type product. Uh, and as soon as it absorbs any water, it all swells up and the whole thing. You know, your kitchen's ruined within sort of yeah. within six hours sort of thing. So I always turn it off mainly for that just because I don't want to come home and find out that for the last three days I've had a small hole destroying my kitchen um it's, it's just one of those little things that's like if you turn it off it's not a problem um or if you've got a leaky tap that you didn't know about or something like that it's just not costing you any money and it's just you know a bit of peace of mind i don't have to worry about it so i always do it i do recommend to everyone to do it doesn't matter how long you're going away for if you're more than away from your house for more than 24 hours do yourself a favor and and do it off Mind you, like saying all of this, obviously I have insurance on my house. If I did have a major issue and it did destroy my kitchen, I'm still covered for it. It's not going to be a massive expense to me. Yeah, personally. It's a pain in the neck though, isn't it? But that's it. It's a huge pain, especially if anyone that's had to have a massive insurance claim or rebuild their kitchen for renovation or something like that knows how much drama it is to oh. replace an entire kitchen and how disruptive it is because it's not going to happen in a day. It's going to happen over weeks, and you're going to have trades, and it's yeah, it's just incredibly disruptive. So, um, for a small, minor, very minor inconvenience, uh, you can have a bit of bit of peace of mind, a bit of security. So,
1: excellent. Well, glad to hear you're back in the flow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, let's move on. There's, There's been new ABS data revealing a very worrying rise in prisoner numbers. So data that was released last week by the Australian Bureau of Statistics reveals that a number of people in prisons nationwide has increased from 40,627 to 42,204 over the last 12 months. While the nation's incarceration rate has increased to 206 prisoners per 100,000 adults from 202 at the same time last year. The increase in the incarceration rate has driven by alarming increases in Tasmania, Queensland and Western Australia, with all other states remaining stagnant. Over the last 12 months, the incarcerations rates have increased in Tasmania from 141 to 160 prisoners per 100,000. That's a 14% increase. In Queensland, from 228 to 247, that's an 8% increase. And from Western Australia, from 293 to 303 per 100,000 adults. So a 3% increase. What's really interesting is that in 1975, there were 8,900 people in prisons across Australia, 8,900 people in prisons around Australia. Now, there are over 40,500.
1: That's a big jump, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's that's really not that long ago in the scheme of things.
0: That is a huge jump in a reasonably short, you know, within the lifetimes Yep. Um yeah The number of prisoners has increased by 355 people per uh, sorry 355% despite the population of Australia only increasing by 86 percent in that same time period. This has resulted in an incarceration rate of 205 per 100,000 of the adult population, which places Australia as one of the fastest growing incarcerators in the world, among other OECD countries. Of these 40,500 prisoners, 38 percent have been imprisoned for non-violent offences. So, It suggested that perhaps some alternative justice measures such as electronic monitoring, home detention, fines, tax penalties, restitution orders and other measures may be preferable. These alternatives would better realise the interests of those who suffer the most from crime, the victims, who have vocalised their discontent with the tough on crime rhetoric in Australia that has led to the over-reliance on incarceration as a form of justice. Opting for alternatives to prison not only provides better restitution for victims of crimes but it also less financially burdensome on the taxpayers. Spending in Australia's criminal justice system is just is the highest it has ever been with government oh. spending $21 billion in 2021-2022 alone. The construction and maintenance of prisons cost the Australian taxpayer over $6 billion last year. That's an increase of $2 billion over the last five years and equates, wow. front and roll please, to $405 per prisoner per day or $147,900 per year. That's a lot of money.
1: That's a huge amount of money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's more interesting is that more than 60% of Australia's prison population has previously incarcerated before, which is one of the highest reoffending rates in the world. Over a third of convicted prisoners in 2021 and 2022 received a prison sentence of less than six months, and short and frequent sentences are associated with high. Uh, High high relapse rates And 66% of these short sentences Are served by non-violent offenders So this is one of these Deeply, deeply complex problems That I feel As much as we're talking about it And as much as the ABS data is very interesting to analyse and paints a pretty grim picture. I do think we should caveat this just at the top that this is obviously a very complicated issue um, and that's the complexity of it isn't, isn't necessarily reflected in the, in the figures. Um, but spending $21 billion on a criminal justice system that clearly isn't working, in my opinion, is unacceptable. We need to do something about this.
1: Yeah, it does seem a a, a, a failure. Now, look, I I agree with you on the the complexity. I'm certainly not uh, keen on going down that heavily privatised route that we seem to see in... The U.S., who's got you know, the highest uh, number of people incarcerated, re- regardless of population, um, you know, they've, they've got more people incarcerated than than China. And you know, what's that? There one third or quarter of the population of China, I think so, something around that. Yes, yes, yeah, I'm like yeah. So going down the privatized, the highly privatized route, in, essentially incentivizes it because the prisoners become a a product um the m- amount of non-violent offenders did you say it was 33 38% or something 30,
0: 38% yeah
1: yeah 38% yeah, that to me sounds like an area that you could probably tackle first i don't know the breakdown of what is um what they're classifying as as non-violent but that to me seems to be an area seems to be uh, a place that you could target first off you know, there's suggestions about well how how can you uh, how, I suppose the question is how do you punish somebody um, sufficiently but not necessarily put them into um, put them into to prison? You know uh, putting them in putting um, things such as you know monitoring devices, restrictions on where they can go, what they can and can't do seems to be a, an alternative way to restrict someone's freedom. Because in my mind, restricting freedom is really what you're, you're trying to aim for as a, a punishment. That also does raise the question of, is restricting freedom the actual um, answer? If there's something like retribution to the victims that needs to be coming out, say, garnished wages or, or benefits, that could be another thing to, to try. Stepping back, it seems like we're not really hearing about, and I accept that that might be because it's just not getting uh, enough attention, but I don't feel like we're hearing about alternative projects and experiments that are getting tried.
0: Mm. Uh, so, have you
1: heard of any alternatives?
0: So the – as I said, there were there – were, um, I'm sorry, what was the exact figure? 40,627. Uh sorry, 42,000 that sorry that was last year. 42,204 people incarcerated in custody uh as of so this is this is uh the ABS's data from it's the end of of the the financial year so it's as oh. of June June the end of the June quarter. Um uh there were also seventy nine thousand nine hundred and eighty four so let's just round it up to eighty thousand people that were already serving community based corrections, so I think this is more they're not you know more like parole type type situation where you have to check in or, or maybe you you have a requirement to do community service and that sort of stuff so it's not that they don't do this you know there's there's all basically double the amount of people doing already out in the community and that kind of stuff what bothers me so much is the reoffending rate i think what's also interesting just on the figures is that 92% of them uh, are male which isn't too surprising but no. only 8% of them are female which i thought was particularly low um so ladies, get out there, pump those numbers up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, you can't expect us to carry the whole load.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Come on. Um unfortunately, they're out of those figures. Uh, so out of uh what did I say? Forty 42, 000... Yep. Sorry, I keep losing where it is. 42,204. Uh Currently, uh, in in under arrest in in the system in custody, I think they call it. Um, Nineteen thousand five hundred and sixty-one, so almost half are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, or identify as Aboriginal
1: and Torres Strait Islander. Wow, that's
0: so what? So, um. Ooh. a lot of these are in community based corrections so that they're not you know they're not actually in prison um they're serving you know their sentence like i said more like a parole type situation where they have to check in and do community service and that sort of stuff so i think these are particularly petty crimes um but looking at the figures it's very clear that we also have an issue in some of these remote communities, with this sort of stuff, and I, again, you know, we've sort of spoken about this in the past, but I, I think there might be a bit of a, a clash of cultures going on somewhat there as well. Um, so that look, we know that's an issue, and that's sort of a little bit outside the scope of what we're talking about today. But that that kind of disturbed me seeing that number as high as it is, um, considering how you know h- how much. Uh, how small of a population relative to the rest of Australia that that um, Torres Strait and uh, Aboriginal people make up. So it is it is it's quite disturbing. So that that works out that their imprisonment rate is two thousand four hundred and seventy persons per one hundred thousand.
1: Jeez, that's a big contrast. That's uh, well, that's about ten times as much.
0: Yeah. So, wow. sorry, that number I gave you before of uh, almost twenty thousand—that's uh, nineteen thousand five hundred and forty, uh, 19,561. That's serving in community-based corrections. Um, actually, imprisoned right now is fourteen thousand and eleven. So, so it's still a bit,
1: that's still a bit over. What's that? That's still a bit over a quarter.
0: Yeah, it's not that's... quite half, but it's not far off it.
1: No, it's still that's it's more like, a yeah, still it's like a fair, a third. fair way. Yeah, yeah, third, okay. Four, three, four, twelve. Yeah, yeah, okay.
0: So that's deeply disturbing as well. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that I have some sort of answer no. f- for that. But it does seem to be spread uh, the most... Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders imprisoned in Australia by far is in Western Australia, uh, and like almost 4,000 of them are in Western Australia, right. uh, and the Northern Territory, which is 3,400. So, um, that's not too surprising because it's where the population centers are, yes. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think WA and NT, Australia wide, we sort of need to maybe look at you know what's going on here and. Because um, the Northern Territory does have a much significantly higher imprisonment rate than most other states and territories. So
1: you know. Average and Torres Strait Islander people or um of people. Just generally. in general. Just oh, in general.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's another one that I'm not gonna dive too deep. I don't have the breakdown of, of that yeah. those sort of figures. Um so i can't say but but it is you know uh, it's a bit of a disturbing trend that we're seeing this stuff go up and and this may even play into the the cost of living issues that we've got at the moment the um housing crisis you know desperate yep. people don't go and do crimes generally speaking um you know you don't see many thieves that are millionaires uh, so there's obviously a correlation with low socioeconomic issues a poor economy you know you put it all together and this is what you sort of expect to have i guess
1: yeah you do tend to find um you know, po- poverty rates and that do uh, be, tend to be associated with with crime and it, also too for you know, young young men is you, you, know, you and i can say are understandably the 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 worst um, it's no surprise that it, it's no surprise. It's mainly males, and I don't know what the breakdown is. But if it's not mainly, um, you know, males under thirty-five, I'd be absolutely bloody astounded because we're the that's where, that's when you're the most uh, when you're most of a, a rat bag. Uh, but it also tends to be when you've got that, uh, you know, the 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 boredom of being in a, a town that might not have much opportunity or, you know, a region that's um, low on the socioeconomic scale, uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't justify it, but uh, there's a certain amount of, well, how do you make your own fun? And oftentimes the young male's mind turns to destructive and uh, risk taking and thrill seeking ways to, uh, to, to, to make You know, to to entertain themselves and to get over the the boredom, boredom, whether it's real or just artificial.
0: Exactly. And what I think, you know, one silver lining to take away from this is in the quarters ending uh, sort of December and March, December 2019 and March 2020, uh, was significantly higher than it is today so things have been worse in the recent past and it seems to be trending back in that direction i think Mm -hmm. covid kind of shook things up quite a bit um and look, we may, you know, there was a big fear about domestic violence during COVID because people were going to have to be, you know, essentially prisoners are in their own homes. Um, and maybe we're starting to see some of that flow on effect. This is speculation. I don't have any evidence yep. to suggest yep. that's the case. Um but – and I think we did see a drop in prisoner numbers uh, in that that March to, to June quarter simply because of COVID. I think they sort of pushed some release dates and stuff like that up because we weren't really sure how lockdowns were going to affect prisons and prisoners and all that kind of stuff. So, I think that sort of muddies the waters a little bit. Um but it is a disturbing trend to see it, to see it go upwards. But I think it is more of a product of the economic situation and and the the political situation. Um, we need to yeah. do better.
1: We need to I'd, do better. I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love to think we'd come up with some sort of um, direction to 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 go in. So I'm not going to criticise anybody. Uh, well, I'm going to criticise the government a little bit because it's their job and that they seem to be. Throwing money at it and it's not working, however, I will also grant that it's a highly complex problem, Um, would be nice to have some sort of uh, attempt, uh, some way to resolve it, but I'll be buggered if I know what the answer is, to be brutally honest.
0: Yeah, I think the only thing we can do is look look around the world at other countries and how they deal with these problems because this is a this, these are human problems this is, you know these aren't yeah. necessarily australian problems or or american problems or whatever um you know we both agree that the american way of doing it sorry to our american listeners though you'd probably agree uh isn't good um
1: as, as a generalized thing because i mean yeah, you know, there are 50 states over there and not necessarily all of them are doing poorly, but as a, as a yes. generalized yes. comment on their overall prison structure
0: yeah and and just like the number of prisoners and the the you know how the whole system from top to bottom, how it works, I think we can mm. say we don't want that here, um, we look at other countries uh Incarceration rates are very, very high, especially for petty crimes, lock people away. You know, some countries still, you know, do horrendous things like cut off hands and stuff like that. So, that's Ooh. obviously not something we want to consider either. Um, and we look to our European friends, and some of them do have really good justice systems that seem to rehabilitate prisoners. And I think that's probably more the direction we need to look at. How can we... And it may it may cost us more money in the short term, um, but I think it's worth actually investing in some of these people that can be rehabilitated that, you know, were down on their luck. Like you said, you'd be in a rat bag, did some stupid stuff because you'd, you'd, you know, had a couple of beers and, and did something silly. Um, maybe the best way about doing, making sure that person doesn't Uh, you know, relapse into crime is to rehabilitate them and and build them up stronger. So, when they leave the the justice system, you know, they're a better person than they went in. And I think that's maybe the way we need to look at it. More as a, um, not as a punishment, but as a a, a rehabilitation type program. And look, I don't know how that really looks and how much this is gonna cost. I'm sure maybe someone in the government's probably looking at it. Anthony Albanese, we do know you listen to the podcast. So maybe there's another freebie for you, mate. Um, oh, yeah. spend fifty million dollars doing doing some research. <laughs> 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 um, and <laughs> I don't know. I just think there's a better way about going about it. What we're doing now isn't working and we can see that it's trending back upwards. So I think we need to, you know, we need to have I what I would like to see is for a system that works, rehabilitates prisoners, gets people back up on their feet. Um, the ones that are, obviously, there's violent offenders. There's people that are sort of beyond help because yep. of you know, their mental state or, or whatever. Um, we're not talking about that. We're talking about you know the people that do silly things or, or even like minor drug charges, possession of marijuana, that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, I know it's largely being decriminalised, but that sort of stuff for the non-violent things, I think there's a better way about going about it.
1: Yeah, I think, look, go hard on the extreme end where you really have to and look for all ways to uh, uh, treat people with basic humanity where you you can is is my idealised way that I'd like to see us move.
0: Yeah, and then again, I've never worked in the, the criminal justice system, so there's possibly listeners screaming at us going... Doesn't work like that, or, or whatever. And like we said, this is a very complicated issue. So I think it oh, might be time.
1: Po- yeah, that's possibly a, a thing for another time. But I've I've <laughs> met a couple of people who've been uh, guards, and a couple of people who are in that industry, and um, there's very different views about people. Um, yes, yes, do, do, doing their time.
0: Yes, exactly. So I think it might be time. To Move on to our two ticks town talk. I've been everywhere, I've been everywhere,
1: Okay, speaking of Western Australia, that's where we go this week for our two ticks, <laughs> but it's this one's this one's a lot more upbeat. Um, we go over to Western Australia to the town of Marble Bar in the uh Pilbara, and my theme for the two ticks town talk this uh w- this week is above and below so just a couple of details marble bars um a town it's also a rock formation over there that they thought was marble but it was um i think jasper it was what it was that it turned out to be uh it's in the pilbara, re- pilbara region of northwestern australia it was the social center of european settlers in the pilbara region during the early 1900s and it was constructed before any of the other towns currently established in the region. Just a bit of basic uh, history. Prior to the arrival of Europeans, the area around there was home to the Nyamal people, uh, Nyamal Aboriginal Language Group. Uh, It was part of the gold rushes to the Pilbara in the last 1880s, There'd been a gold rush up in the Kimberleys further north, but it basically ran out pretty quickly, and they headed south to uh, t- south to Pilbara. It was discovered, gold was discovered near Mar- Marble Bar in 1891. 93, um, settlement was officially declared a town. Uh, 1980, 1899, the 332-ounce General Gordon gold nugget was discovered. Boy, wouldn't you
0: holy wouldn't moly. It.
1: 332 ounces.
0: That's gotta be one of surely that's like right up there in one of the biggest chunks.
1: I, I think it is up there as is notable. What's that? Three what what what's gold at the moment? Gold's around uh what's that that's that's about 2K very roughly US so that's going to be 668 us dollars so yeah it's going to be something like a 1.1 million dollar nugget very roughly plus collector value
0: how many was it sorry how many
1: ounces 332 ounces
0: okay i just googled it yep apparently the biggest one is called the welcome stranger i yes And it weighs 3,523 troy ounces. okay. So (laughs)
1: one-tenth of that. Bloody hell. Holy moly. (laughs) Oh.
0: But it's not to take away from, uh, what did you say, the sergeant something? Yeah, General Gordon. General Gordon. So uh, Welcome Stranger is also from Australia. From Um, Ballarat
1: or something, wasn't it?
0: uh, Mulligal. Oh, I don't know where that is. Molligal, Victoria.
1: Yeah, I should know, but
0: near yeah. near. Apparently, it's sixty k's west of Bendigo.
1: Oh, Bendigo. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Around that region,
0: <laughs> and oh. it was only it was only three centimeters below the surface.
1: Wow! You'd think someone was playing <laughs> a joke on you, wouldn't you? <laughs>
0: That's like what the hell? <laughs> oh,
1: God. Uh, Gold Rush was short-lived. 1905, the prospectors had uh, buggered off and held, headed for the richer fields at Coolgardie. A um, couple of factoids, filthy hot in Marble Bar. Yeah. That's yeah. Probably, probably one thing known as the hottest town in Australia. It's still got that record. It holds that record from uh, the, the Guinness Book of Records. It had 160... One consecutive days. This is in um, 1924, where the temperature never dropped below uh, 37.8 degrees Celsius, which is 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my god! (laughs) Oh my god! (laughs) The novelty be wearing off there. 161 days. Bloody hell! And that record still stands. Um, Wow. During all the time that records have been kept, temperature in towns never dropped below zero degrees. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, another factoid, they got st- uh, fossilized stromatolites. Uh, you had talked about stromatolites uh, when you talked about Shark Bay. Yes. Um, I can't remember the episode that was. That was before I was starting to put the name of the towns into the, the show notes. Yeah. Um, but yes, so they got fossilised ones there, and it was also the place of a, a secret World War II air day airbase. Uh, there was a, um, a farm, oh, not farm, you'd call it a, a station. Yep, called Corona Downs and uh, or Corona Downs, C-U-C-O-R-U-N-A, Uh and they set up a, a big airfield there, but that's not really the um, thing. The thing that surprised me is that in that area um, of the Pilbara, it's a hotspot for subterranean fauna. Now, really? Yes, which I hadn't actually heard of before. Now, Given life is everywhere in extreme things, I shouldn't be surprised. But if you'd have said to me, you uh, know, life out there, uh, apparently it's uh, well-known around the the world. Well, we'll get, get a bit of detail. That's the whole point of it. that's what That's one of the joys of going through these two-ticks town talks. Is so I think, oh, hang on, what's that? I'll just dig a bit uh, deeper. So subterranean fauna... Uh, It refers to animal species that are adapted to live in an underground environment. There's troglofauna and stigofauna, which are the two types of subterranean, and they're either living in little fishes and uh, caves or down in the water table. Um, So the main characteristics of that environment is lack of sunlight Climatic values, climatic values like temperature and relatively relative humidity, are generally um, almost stable. Uh, you get a, an even mean temperature. Um, humidity rarely drops below 90%, and there's just sort of limited food source, limited and localized food sources. Uh, why do we care about them? Is probably a reasonable <laughs> reasonable question to ask, like why do – I thought, okay, that's all very exciting, but uh, it's from the biodiversity and species diversity point of uh, view. There's just a, an array of species to study, particularly those that live in extreme conditions. Their ecosystem functioning, the organisms actually are part of the ecological processes such as uh, nutrient cycles, decomposition, and, and energy flow they are an indicator species which means if you're studying these and you're learning how they are particularly if you've got them down into to aquifers and that they can serve as systems of uh, as indicators of ecosystem health in the same way as you might hear you know a whole lot of frogs croaking and you know the waters reasonably um, healthy yeah. Uh, so yeah it it can tell you about you know what's happening in the above the water table and below the water table uh, there's you know, the climate change and adaptation, adaptation uh, portion of it, and uh, there's also pharmaceutical potential. Because they've evolved unique biochemical compounds to adapt to the environment, those compounds may have potential applications in medicine, um, you know, new drugs, or different, uh, different treatments so that was there's there's this whole world of um subterranean uh subterranean animals to to learn about troglofauna and stigo fauna there was a paper written about the robe valley and the robe valley is not that far from marble bar and that was where uh that was that was where the tying came and where it uh, really sort of caught my attention and there was a there's a few references i'll put them in the show notes but i want to particularly mention uh this one by where are i did note them down this is a mob in w a um why have i not got that clearing out of there? there we go uh, yeah, it's a paper in, from 2021 by a mob called uh, Benelongia Environmental Consultants in WA. It's titled A Hotspot of Arid Zone Subterranean Biodiversity. Okay. So, uh,
0: so in, <laughs> like, uh, there's, uh, this is one of those things that, like, I feel like, you know, our human centric idea of the planet Earth very rarely includes. Ooh things below the surface um, you know j- just because you know we don't live underground generally speaking um, and when when there is a place that you go underground it's a bit of a novelty you know um, uh, um, outside of the cities obviously with subway systems and and, and tunnels and yeah. stuff like that um, but to think that there's whole whole networks and yes of, of creatures living under the surface especially when the surface is so hostile exactly. you know huh. <laughs> and like can get over uh, uh over you know almost 50 degrees celsius over over 100 degrees fahrenheit consistently throughout the year six months of the year is you know over 40 degrees sort of thing um and right below the surface Just colonies of bacteria are just thriving. It just, the juxtaposition of it is. Oh, these are are little,
1: these are in, uh, not not just bacteria, these are uh, like invertebrates. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 tiny little invertebrates. I I possibly wasn't um, clear on that. Yeah. I mean, there'll be bacteria and that there, but no, these are like little, like tiny little invertebrates and worms and, um, Oh, a whole array of ones I don't even pretend to um understand but yeah heaps of uh heaps of invertebrates and it's this uh, just this that there's this whole world below there and that it's world renowned as being a particularly rich spot for these uh these subterranean fauna but, yeah I thought it was now you'll I'll, this I'll took a couple of excerpts from that paper that I think are interesting. I think you'll like this. So the troglofauna, and you might've heard, you know, that term, that term, oh, someone's a troglodyte, they live in a cave. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that troglo, uh, I'm assuming it's going to have some Greek origin there. The troglofauna occurs in small voids and fissures in uh, messes. That, so they're those ones you see, the big outcrops with the steep cliffs on the, the side and up there they're comprised mostly of, of iron ore. The Steiger fauna are in the, uh, the the water table and the alluvium, which is the s- sediment that's been deposited over many years by the, the river floodplains. Um, the whole area of Pilbara is apparently rich in this uh, subterranean fauna. They're studying the Robe Valley because that seems to be particularly Rich, but their um, speculation is that that's indicative of the actual region. Uh, They got most much of the fauna was uh, collected from fifty meters below ground using mining exploration drill holes and monitoring wells. So that's a long way down.
0: That's a long way down. So sorry, while you've also been talking, I've gone to the Benalongia uh, website and to have a look. And I'm friggin' looking at a picture of a troglofauna spider.
1: Oh, don't get don't get uh, too far ahead of you. I won't, I
0: won't spoil it, but this is not what I thought you were <laughs> not talking exactly. about. exactly. I thought you were talking about you know just little little bits and pieces, not full on things that you would recognize. Like this yep. is crazy. Okay, yep. continue. Sorry, scorpion,
1: scorpion like ones, uh, cra- crabs were, Yeah, it's it's it sort of blew me away. Um. Yeah, we've got the richness of subterranean fauna in the Pilbara has been explained as partly a result of many aquatic and mesic adapted. Uh, to, this is this is a technical one, which uh, basically I'll I'll ex- explain it in a moment. Uh, terrestrial invertebrate species escaping the harshest of surface habitats during the Miocene acid- aridification by moving underground. Sometimes with dramatic subsequent radiation, and radiation in that one means that they um, went underground and then radiated out from those habitats. Not um, yeah, because it they was so dry. into monsters. <laughs> yeah. Okay,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the nuclear tests?
1: Yeah, that's that's right. So basically, they were living at the these invertebrates were living above ground in in water and moisture rich environments. But then as Australia started drying out during the Miocene epoch, which was 23 to 5 million years ago, um, they say that backwards, I, I think 5 to 23, but it's, it's 23 yeah. to 5 million years ago. Apparently, that's when Australia started going from uh, you know, this, this nice you know, lush area, and not just Australia, other parts of the world, Sahara and all that as well, and started turning into these dry deserts that we know today. So um, they said they haven't got many species described to, to date, so they were using codes and uh, and that for them. The Pilbara Creighton is one, and Creighton uh, is just like an, an area of rock. It's one of the oldest and most stable geological regions in the world, with basement rocks dating as far back as three and a half billion years Uh So you're talking old, old, old. Um, Despite that stability, they said the the climate has changed uh, substantially over the past 20 billion years, as we saw when it went from cool and wet to hot and arid, Um, and as Australia separated from Antarctica and began moving northwards. So before we leave the underground and return to the return to the podcast, I want to finish off with a description of one of the invertebrates, which <laughs> I thought we've got to hear about one of them. These are, this is a genus called Draculoides, uh, of a troglobite uh, uh, It's a troglobite of Northwest Australia, often mistaken for spiders. They are commonly known as short-tailed whip scorpions or sprickets. Schizomids are small, soil dwelling, eight legged invertebrates that walk on six legs and use the two modified front legs as feelers. They employ large, fang like pedipalps or pinches to grasp invertebrate prey and crunch it into pieces before sucking out the juices. And on that delicious (laughs) note, that concludes the two ticks town talk (laughs) on Marble Bar in Western Australia.
0: How oh, interesting! Whip yeah. scorpions are one of those creatures that look so scary, but they're actually... Well, I don't know about that one, but normal normal whip scorpions are harmless to people. Um, people would recognise it for our younger listeners, or, or I should say, uh, millennial listeners. You'll recognise it from one of the Harry Potter movies. It was it was in one of them where they were. Um. Basically, they used it to, to demonstrate a, a, a spell where they killed it. Um, and I'd never oh. seen one before and until that film, and I was horrified. I was like, what the actual hell is that? <laughs> it looks like someone combined... Like a giant spider with yeah. and gave it and gave it like crab claws. Like it's, it's so scary looking. Um, turns out they're completely uh completely harmless to people. Uh which is incredible. Um and this underground one I've, uh, again on the Benelongi website, I can see it here. It is very Scary looking, but <laughs> um, and probably for those very people harmless. who
1: are paranoid about it, just remember: if you go up there, there are literally thousands of them crawling under the ground everywhere. Around you. <laughs> <laughs> They're always around. Um, <laughs> some of them called Draculoides.
0: <laughs> it's no, it's so incredible because, of course, yep. this this sort of thing may be all around the world, and we just don't know because. Why would we know? I think they're probably likely... They are,
1: they are around the world, these subterranean fauna. There's, it's, it's definitely something that occurs worldwide. Uh, up there, in the Pilbara region happens to be particularly, um, a particularly high and notable level
0: there you go so interesting so yeah. interesting what that's changed my, that's like changed my view of the world <laughs> completely actually i didn't i had no idea that, that this sort of why. stuff was was these horrors are right <laughs> below our feet um, i would i would if you're interested listeners because some of these are particularly weird to look at i would urge you to go to the the Benny longer uh dot .com.au b e n n e l dot acomau have a look at uh, their Subterranean Fauna page uh, or just Google Subterranean Fauna. And I'll put Fauna. it in the show
1: notes too. So when you, when yeah. the podcast gets downloaded, we'll have it in the, the sources. We're starting to put uh, some of the sources we we use just to uh, so that people can find it just to, to credit ones that have given us some information. So I'll make sure there's a link to that paper in there.
0: Credit where credit's due and all of that. So, very interesting. Thank you so much. No worries. Let's move on. Talking about minerals and mining and Australia's role and choices in the global green energy uh, sector moving forward. So, we've spoken about this a few times and Australia has... Really long struggled to resolve the puzzle of converting enormous mineral wealth into advanced industries manufacturing products such as batteries. Actually, I think we spoke about this very specific situation uh, in sort of uh, late August uh, when we were talking about some of the green energy initiatives uh, coming out of the budget and things like that. But Australia... Australia's continued willingness to focus on raw mineral exports is in sharp contrast to a drive underway in other countries to reassert control over their resource endowments as a basis for further industrialization, which is very much what we were talking about uh, a few weeks ago. Other countries are using so-called resource nationalism measures to compel mining companies to invest in mineral refinement and and processing. Indonesia, for example, has slapped a ban on raw nickel exports in a bid to supercharge its domestic nickel refinement and electric vehicles. The United States' much-discussed Inflation Reduction Act has been, uh, has seen conditions put on green tax breaks for domestic production and procurement requirements, including for critical minerals, with claims that it's already created 170,000 clean energy jobs. Chile plans to nationalise its lithium industry and alongside Argentina and Bolivia is reportedly looking to possibly, that's very vague, uh, seek to form a lithium OPEC-type cartel to control the lithium supply and hence the pricing. Australia's international approach to mining related industrial Industrialization is simply out of step with all of the peers. <laughs> with, with little evidence to suggest that Australia is meaningfully decreasing its heavy economic reliance on raw mineral exports, the government should be seriously considering adopting its own measures to shape the mining policy within Australia and its green trans- transition abroad. The resource demands of the green transition will only increase the importance of Australia's mining sector, given the widespread commercial applications of critical minerals and clean energy technologies. Australia, as the government likes to boast, is the world's largest producer of lithium and the third largest producer of cobalt and the fourth largest producer of rare earths. Providing the Australian government with significant leverage Over the coming years and decades, the defining question for Australia will be how we apply this leverage. Mm. Lithium OPEC sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Considering we're the largest producer of lithium, we might want to get into the ground for Anthony Albanese. As we said, we know you listen. Maybe get on the phone to Chile, Argentina, or Bolivia. Make some friends. Um. <laughs> the the Australian critical stop it the Australian critical minerals strategy for 2023 to 2030 is a promising first step. The strategy's commitment to supply chain diversification is pivotal for safeguarding the Australian economy against external shocks. As Australia is already investing billions of dollars in critical mining projects through Export Finance Australia, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility, and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And if the government's plan to build sovereign capability in critical minerals processes materialises, it could create thousands of well-paid long-term jobs. So, My dear listeners, I downloaded and read the government's critical mineral strategy 2023 to 2030. Well done. Don't tell me, don't ever tell me that I'm not committed to bring you the best information. Uh, It was very boring to read. (laughs) (laughs) It was 64 pages of buzzwords, basically. But this is how it basically boils down. I've quoted this from their strategy. Uh, So, again, brace for the buzzwords. So, the the strategy's vision is that by 2030, Australia will have grown the geostrategic geo-str- and economic benefits of critical minerals sector. It is a sub- global, globally significant producer of raw and processed critical materials, supports a diverse and resilient sustainable supply chain. Its objectives are to create diverse, resilient and sustainable supply chains through strong and secure international partnerships, build sovereign capability and critical materials processing, use our critical minerals to help become a renewable energy superpower and extract more value onshore from our resources, creating jobs, economic opportunity, including for our regional and First Nations communities. So that all sounds quite good. Um but it, of course, it is still to be determined whether Australia will actually use this overarching strategy to justify more interventionist policies that could kick start the domestic manufacturing sector, which I know I can hear groaning. Ugh government regulations forcing industry. But I think in this situation, it really does. The government is going to have to be the one that's pushing for this because the, these mining companies are making enough money as it is. They're not going to invest billions just to make millions, you know. Um, yep. In saying all of that, not insignificant amount of money has already been dedicated to encouraging the mining of critical minerals and, indeed, the development of mining-related advanced industries. But Australia's approach so far has largely been a business as usual, reflective of a a time before widespread opposition to the World Trade Organization's trade liberalisation agenda and its international legal architecture led by many countries to adopt overly protectionist trade policies. And I think it's important that we realise that the rules-based world order is currently a threat and that includes opposition to the international trade laws and the international global supply chain security. We need to be wary of the future position that we want to take and probably be a bit more protectionist and probably take the blinders off and realise that we can't just, you know, continue stomping through the global uh politics and the quagmire of of international trade with our blinders on, happy go lucky Australia is just just yeah. continuing to, to keep on keeping on. You know, as the saying is, we're the lucky country, which basically means we're led by idiots and we're lucky enough that
1: <laughs> it keeps getting
0: it keeps turning out. So yep. Yeah. We probably need to shed that a little bit, be a little bit smart here. We The writing's on the wall. The good thing is the government's critical mineral strategy, I think, kind of addresses that. I think they're aware of the opportunities that are are coming, um, that are here, uh, at our incredible position that we're in for this. Yep. However... This is coming from a Labour government who may only see another term. When government changes, are they going to are they going to continue on this trajectory? I don't know. I would hope so. I hope this plan goes into into effect. But I could so easily see this as, oh, we're just going to throw it back to the industry, and the industry just goes meh, and just. You know it, before we know it we, again we're just the world's quarry, and we're yeah. not adding anything and
1: that's the that's the key that is really the key point for me adding adding value uh, i, I oh, was it i'm trying to think now whether it was Qatar or united arab oh i can't remember which of the um significant i don't think it was Saudi Arabia I could stand be quick. so one of the um the uh, arab uh, Arabic countries in that that region had looked at their their oil whilst they'd calculated that there was uh you know still a fair amount of reserves it was dwindling, and they have been making strong strong moves towards value adding their oil before it even leaves their border and that means producing uh, all the different byproducts you get from, from oil, which range from pharmaceuticals through fertilizers, through plastics, through uh, specialized refined products, through to just simple um, uh, f- fuels, because they understand that they have to actually get a, a better value out of it. And I read that and I looked at our embarrassing let's chuck a wheelbarrow of stuff on the boat and uh, get a couple of bucks for it, and then let's buy it back at ten times the the price when we actually need it. And I was pleased to hear in that distillation that excerpt you took from it that there was some sort of recognition towards that that value adding. But their words, I would like to see actual actions, and look. <laughs> You know my opinion on on governments. I thought it was an interesting uh, way to uh, sort of to nudge or encourage uh, in Indonesia where they said you can't they put a ban on uh, raw nickel exports uh, which meant that people you can't just dig it out of the ground and sell it. you've actually got to do something with it now. On principle, I'm opposed to uh, that sort of corruption of the market by government. However, under the current system that we've we've got, uh, looking at it as uh, particular alternatives, I was surprised at what a sort of clever uh, a clever approach that was by the Indonesian government. Don't particularly want to emulate them in a lot of ways, but yeah. that did strike me as an interesting way to say, yeah, sure, dig it up, but you can't just chuck it on a boat and send it out. Now, I don't know what we'd do for Australia. I don't think that would necessarily fly. I don't know whether it would get past all the lobbyists either, you know, the the real sort of power in in politics. However, the idea that you could – like, the idea that Australia is not shipping steel – in large Chinese-like amounts to the rest of the world because we've created the infrastructure where we've got the engineers, the manufacturing base, and the technology, and send, taking it out of the ground, putting it by train or by truck to a local processing uh, plant, taking that refined thing, processing it into steel, producing uh, a world-quality product, and then shipping that Product over overseas and gaining a reputation for a quality product. It just it just boggles me how there's. I, I figure if I can see it, and I'm not very bright on a lot of things, but I can bloody well see this. And I'm thinking, surely it's a you know, bloody lay down, bizarre. Push it towards that way. Actually, get um, get some advanced manufacturing into Australia to, to do this the critical minerals that we were talking about i mean uh, i was looking at geoscience australia and they say critical mineral is a metallic or non-metallic element that has two characteristics it's essential for the functioning of modern technologies economies or national security and there is a risk that its supply chains could be disrupted either one of those are critical impetus in my opinion for um, or critical incentive, in my opinion, to develop these localised industries, both of them together, if that's not being encouraged and enabled by government, I feel that government are deliberately not serving the people.
0: Yeah, there's a point where government need... They sort of have an obligation to, to step in. Just going back to Indonesia's situation, I think Indonesia... Uh, is a good example because they are really pushing to be a, a leader in the manufacture of electric vehicles um the, you know they they realize that the boats already sailed on manufacturing of internal combustion engines i think the infrastructure yep. required to set that up is is it's is a lot more complex um and but obviously, the electric vehicle, vehicle industry is still emerging, um, and they are looking at this going. We could get in on the ground floor, set this up big time, and be a and be a significant player in this industry. I know, back in. I think it was June or July this year. They did. They were in talks with with Australia to supply some of those critical minerals and that kind of stuff. But there's also no reason that Australia couldn't basically steal Indonesia's homework uh, and do, do the same thing. We, you know, we used to make cars in this country. Uh, up until only a few years ago, we we built Toyotas uh, and obviously Holdens. Uh, we used to previously, we built Fords as well. So, um, and I'm sure other smaller men, car manufacturers. So it's not like we don't have the skills or the infrastructure pre- that we previously were using. And this was only a few years ago that they shut down. So I think we could look at this and go, we literally have everything here in Australia to build this exactly. an electric car industry. Or yeah. like you said- I think the big thing about steel is steel production uses a lot of energy and, uh, like, it's proper heavy industry stuff. It's quite dangerous. Well,
1: you know my my answer to the energy side anyway, don't you?
0: (laughs) Exactly. It's a nuclear question, right? So, but, of course, we have a lot of coal. So, the energy thing actually isn't a problem. I think it's more... uh, OH&S type situation, Mm. I think it costs too much money to manufacture steel in Australia. That's why we ship it overseas. But I remember I was talking to a friend who was recently in Alaska uh, in America, and he told me that the price of fuel was really high. And I said, isn't Alaska famous for, like, oil production? And he said, yes, but they don't have any refineries. No. So everything that's pulled out of the ground has to be yeah. sent to the mainland US and then shipped back to Alaska. Yeah. And that costs money. So, by the time it gets back, it's, it's no cheaper than – it's actually more expensive than elsewhere in the US, even though this is where it comes from. And I was like, that just seems so backwards. And it, it, Australia's situation is very much the same, where we're pulling this stuff out – or, or even um, I was talking to a friend the other day that was telling me about uh, – he works in forestry and he was telling me about how some of the high-end timber was actually being shipped overseas to Southeast Asia, not 100% sure exactly where, to be uh, basically manufactured and, and, and sort of cleaned up and everything like that. And then it was sent back to Australia. And I was like, why can't we just do it here? And it's a case of, again, you know, uh, wages are too high, insurance costs, da 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 There's a lot of red tape that I think is really holding us back. Yep. Um, And look, we've spoken about this before, and I think this is just another glaring incident. But... Least- it's pretty bloody
1: costly though i mean i know we've we, it's another glaring it's it's, a, it's another thing but we're talk we're talking about a multi-generational impact on uh an entire nation if you can't get your energy right and you can't get your manufacturing right you're either a sitting duck for more powerful nations with ill intentions, or you become some poor little bloody backwater that's digging stuff out of the ground and shipping off there. This this lack of vision and uh, lack of Any bloody moral fibre or backbone to overcome these barriers, and yeah, I I get the I get their barriers at the the moment. I get it's going to require imagination. It's going to require someone sitting down like no, look, stuff you. I'm sorry, but we're going to have to power. We're going to have to throw a couple of. yeah, you know, coal-fired power plants until we get this up and running, then we can go to the solar, then we can maybe go to the nuclear, but we just gotta be able to manufacture this stuff. We've got to be able to have some sort of independence. Otherwise, we just go down the drain.
0: Exactly. And I think when you say at the start of the sentence, you said it's very costly. And I think yeah. for our listeners, for clarification, what you meant by that wasn't wasn't that it's expensive, literally that it costs a lot of money. It's that when we don't and and with other countries are waking up to this as well. Yep. America is a good example. The USA is waking up to this at the moment where they've you've basically We've got rid of all of this capacity domestically and we've sent it elsewhere because we've let private companies, we've let the market decide and the private companies have moved everything to China because it was a lot cheaper. Um, and I don't blame them for their business decisions because, of course, they would. The problem is is now that we've basically lost the vast majority of that capability, there is a a cost to our future, to our mm. children there's also a certain degree of opportunity but there is a significant cost to our ability to uh a good example is manufacture i don't know a lot of people don't like hearing this but manufacture arms and uh in in times of war manufacture uh and <clears throat> Uh, local manufacturing in times of crisis, uh, in times of global pandemic, I think that really, sh- I think the COVID nineteen pandemic really had a big shock to the system, where it, where the global supply chain really broke down very very quickly, because it's all well and good getting a Chinese bloke to manufacture everything, but if you can't get those things from that Chinese bloke back here, you still have nothing doesn't matter if it's cheaper you've got nothing so there's a point where you, yeah, there's a point where you go we've lost this ability and it's cost us potentially everything because we don't have it anymore, so you know, and the u s was at least at least from their defense point of view, was smart in keeping that capability, and that's where the you know the 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 military industrial complex and and how it all works, and, mm-hmm. and people hate it and people love it and da 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 da. We're not getting into that now, but the point of it was that other manufacturing may leave, but this will always be here because we need this to defend the international trade to defend. Um, our, our global partners and and things like that. So, and we're seeing this in Europe now, obviously with the war in Ukraine. They're having to ramp up production of particularly like artillery shells and things like that. That previously, you know, we you can have a big stockpile of stuff, but if you can't make it anymore, it doesn't matter how big that stockpile is, it is finite. And if you're using it, it's going to run out, uh, <laughs> as Russia's finding out. So, I think it's mine. You know, I think. Opinions have changed very quickly about... I really hope that mentality sticks and stays and we end up... I would love to see Australia like the hub of electric vehicle manufacturing or a hub of electric vehicle manufacturing, uh, as an example. Uh, um, I'd,
1: love to, I'd, love to, I'd love to see that, but I'd also love to see as Australia as... Uh, the, the the hub of exotic alloys. I'd like to see Australia as the hub of green aluminium and green steel. You know, imagine uh, uh, you've, you imagine the sales value in saying this aluminium and, and like, aluminium takes an absolute shirtload of power and, and, and electricity. To, to manufacture it's like, so not to, like yes to, to manufacture and break down it's it's just a it's just a beast when it comes to gobbling it but imagine saying imagine being able to say you know we've got the amount you could get from your carbon credits if you could say we have bought australian green aluminium and australian green steel because those guys are using now I think nuclear because nuclear is such a, a green technology. But I don't care if it turns out to be you, ha- you have to have you know freaking millions of hectares of of solar to get to it to to get the thing through. I don't I don't really care on that side. But to be able to produce that electricity and to say they get it out of the ground as best as they could, they rehabilitate the 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 mines, they produce this product with green thing. It's a saleable item in the same way that. uh yeah, you know, something like organic foods are a saleable item. It costs a bit more. It's it's more complex, but people are saying, no, bugger it. I don't want a whole, you know, shirtload of um, you know, grazon and um glyphosate in a thing. I want something that's uh you know naturally naturally produced. There's just so much opportunity and you know, we we get stuck in these bloody ideological back and forths and nothing happens for another freaking decade.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's sort of my concern is if this government has this plan and they go to implement it, especially if it does earn them political brownie points, then the next government is more inclined to not continue that program because it's what their competitors set up. You know what I mean? Like that—that that is politics in a nutshell. And that what kind of worries me a little bit is that this plan on paper sounds really good. And if it's executed well, I think we'll see some of these things that we're talking about. You know, this government currently is being quite ambitious about these renewable projects, about the green hydrogen and and, and all of that. And they're they're throwing money at it for good reason. Anthony Albanese is also being uh, sort of chumming up to some of these big mining companies because these are the companies that need to be on board for this plan to work. Mm. Um, and that certainly rubs certain people the wrong way. Uh, what bothers me is the the opposition currently do not like this sort of, um, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to say they're climate change denialists because that's not quite true, but they're definitely not on the renewable bandwagon to the same extent, let's just say. No. And what worries me is if there is a change in, in in government, which, of course, there will be eventually, this plan may get nipped in the bud before it really gets off the ground. And I think this is one of those situations where this really needs to be bipartisan because it's too important. This is not our children. This is our grandchildren and their children. We're in a position where we could, a kind of a unique position, really, for Australia, where we could blow up into not a superpower but certainly a regional superpower and we could be supplying the world a lot of the minerals and materials that they need to, to move into the future like everyone's going renewable whether you like it or not and you're right there is that warm fuzzy feeling about oh this aluminium was you know uh we already see it with like recycling and stuff like that mm. Um, My wife bought something the other day. I can't even tell you what it was. Oh, man, on the bottle, it said this bottle is off white or something because it's made of 100% recycled plastic. And I was like, hey, cool. I don't really care, but she does. And so she bought it. That's important. That's important to some consumers. They care about these things. You can charge a premium for it. So if we do the green hydrogen, we can then manufacture green steel or green aluminium. Before you know it, everyone's driving cars and we're living in a bloody utopian society. So we'll, (laughs)
1: yeah, absolutely, it all it all comes together. Yeah, looks spot on, and let's hope we look back in history and say Australia made the right decision.
0: Ah, now you've done it, and now it's not going to work. You've jinxed it.
1: (laughs) I've, 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 I've jinxed the manufacturing.
0: Yeah, you've changed the plan. All right, what's going on this <laughs> week? What's happened this week in Australian history?
1: Come from la, 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 la. Okay, this, this week in Australian history, we're, co- we're covering the dates uh, September 21st to September 27th. You, you threw me there for a bit. <laughs> I, I had about three things going through my head there. Um. <laughs> September twenty first, nineteen seventy three, the Jackson Pollock painting Blue Poles is controversially purchased by the Whitlam government for one point three million. I've seen Blue Poles at the uh, I think it's the National Gallery in Canberra. I like it. Oh, I think it was a great purchase. It made a hell of a lot of se- – I can't remember how much it was valued at now it's some at some ridiculous uh, amount, um, but in person you see it and you sort of think, yeah, well, I think, yep, I get it. A lot of people I'm sure go by it and think, what? Uh, but, you know, art is art. I know, I, this is one of those ones – Have you seen it?
0: I've seen pictures of it. I've not seen it in real life. Um, it doesn't do a huge amount for me. I'm not really big on the abstract, like, impressionist sort of paintings. Um, but what I... I, what I I don't understand why they bought it. Like, it just seems like a weird purchase for the government to be like, oh, yeah, I like that painting. i got to have that.
1: I think it was a look there's always that there's always the thing of um national galleries etc require money to produce to to purchase works of significance in order to uh enhance the cultural value of what they're presenting to the people and this is one of those paintings that it was determined would be representative of a particular era um and allow people to Appreciate it and become culturally enriched. I mean, that's that's essentially the the argument of it. And and I can. That's funny. I, I'm I'm sorry. Just in the back of my head, I, there's there's a there's a conspiracy. There's a conspiracy theory that the CIA was behind a lot of uh, the abstract um, art world's works, and that this was. Pred- Purchased by the Whitlam go- government, the other conspiracy theory is that the CIA was responsible for getting rid of Whitlam. It was just going through my head, uh, but yeah, yeah. But look, it's 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 meant to be for cultural enrichment. Now, personally, do I think government should be doing all this? In principle, no. But in the system that we've got, yeah, I sort of I I sort of get it. And look, I've I've been to a lot of uh, art galleries and museums and thinking, yeah, okay. I can see why people go through here and it can, seeing some of these things in person can uh, change your perception a little bit. Not for everybody, but for, for some people. So. Yeah.
0: No, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: yeah. 1971, on September 21st, the 4th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment is involved in Australia's last major action, of Vietnam War at Nui Dat. 2000. French athlete, uh, tuta, uh, sorry, year two, uh, year two thousand, on September twenty first, French athlete Marie Jose Parec flees the Olympic Village without competing in the Summer Olympics in Sydney. She claimed that the. Uh, she'd been threatened, insulted several times since arriving in Australia and that the Australian press who were supporting athlete Cathy Freeman, you know, she was the bee's knees as we've talked about before, they'd been trying to sabotage her chances of, of winning the gold medal in the 400 metres. Um, well, I suppose we've all got our sorry stories. I tend to fall down on the sookie-la-la side. But, you know, she did cop a lot of crap. So, So, she –
0: I vaguely remember this being in the news at the time, but did she go – she, like, left and went back to France? Is that – or did she just hang out in Australia for a while?
1: I don't know where she went. Okay. The bit that I looked at didn't say where she went, so I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but basically, yeah, she chucked a wobbly and took off. So, yeah. Yeah. September 22nd, 1918, the first direct radio message between London and Sydney. Um, significant. 1957, Nick Cave, Australian rock musician and songwar- songwriter, was born in Warwick-Nabeel in Victoria. September 23rd, 1856, town, the town (laughs) of Perth, Western Australia, is proclaimed a city by letters patent from Queen Victoria. So yeah, Queen Victoria got uh, Perth into a city. 1942, General Thomas Blamey was appointed commander-in-chief of the Allied forces in New Guinea. Uh, He had a bit of a... Uh, back and forth with General Douglas MacArthur, who'd gotten, gotten sort of, uh, you know, gotten his nose out of joint between some performance of the, uh, the Australian troops and was very derogatory towards them. But when
0: oh, MacArthur was an asshole, yeah, he, he was an asshole, wasn't he? Everyone. He was a prick. Yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah.
1: Look, I, and I suppose you get up to that level, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that he did. Did well, but yeah, um, yeah, it was a bit of a C word, <laughs> so- yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <let's-> yeah. <laughs> general
0: went to his head though, yeah, for sure,
1: yeah, yeah. So, when, uh, but then when, when Blamey, uh, General Thomas Blamey, the uh, American troops suffered a, a serious reverse in the, the Battle of uh, Bunagona, which was, was a battle in uh, New Guinea after the Koda Trail campaign, and uh. According to uh, Lieutenant General George Kennedy, the commander of uh, Allied Air Forces, Blamey said, Frank, fr- "Frankly, said he would rather send in more Australians as he knew they would fight." Which <laughs> turned out to be a, a bit of okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's a bit of, a, but it's still uh, it's still a little bit funny. <laughs> Um, I suppose obviously digs back and forth, their, their egos would have been huge. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, 1993, the IOC selects Sydney to be the site of the 2000 Summer Olympics. Uh, September 24th, 1898, Howard Florey uh, shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Uh, he was born in Adelaide. 1899, Sir William Dobell. Artist, sculptor, and painter, triple threat, was born in Cooks Hill in Newcastle. Um, we had the, Last week, we had the Archibald Prize mentioned, and the Dobell Prize is a famous prize for drawing. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think I'll be entering the drawing. I have entered the Archibald Prize a couple of times, but haven't um, entered, no, I haven't even consider myself for drawing because I've seen how people draw and I think, oh, out of my league.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my wife's a very good drawer. Is um, she? Yeah, she's she's incredibly talented and it makes me feel so inadequate by contrast. Um, <laughs> like, like, yeah, even, even her writing is, like, amazing and mine's just, like, chicken scratch, so...
1: Suggest to her that she gives the Dobell Prize a crash. Oh, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty bloody average painter, but I've been in the – I've entered and got nowhere, obviously. However, I've entered the Archibald Prize um, a, a couple of times. You, know, you, you never know what's going to um, catch the, the attention. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I think there's this thing of people think, oh, you have to be you know, these, these high and mighty and all the things. No, freaking give it a crack. Uh, 1903, Alfred Deacon became the second Prime Minister of Australia after Edmund Barton resigned. Uh, into the home straight September 25th, 1793, Australia's first church is open in Sydney. And you know what I should have looked up was the denomination of that. Don't know. Surely it
0: would be like Anglican, like the Church of England, but maybe not. Ooh. Because it's that's... an English colony, right?
1: Well, that's a very good point. You continue.
0: I will look it up. I will find
1: out. Okay. Okay. 1793, September 25th, Australia's first church. Um, 1862, uh, Billy Big Ears Hughes, the seventh prime minister of Australia, was born in London. 1998. Uh, exp- oh, I said in the home run. Sorry. September 27th where we finished? swing. We're still on September 25th. Uh, looking at my notes, poorly arranged. 1998, explosion at the So natural gas plant at Longford in Gippsland. Uh, I, being from, I was in Victoria at this time. I'd, I'd come down here. We'd been, oh, I think we'd been here about eight years or something. So the fire at the plant was not extinguished until two days later. The Longford plant was shut down immediately and the state of Victoria was left without its primary gas supply. Excuse me. Primary gas supplier. Uh, within days, Vencorp, which was the, the mob organizing gas the gas supplies, shut down the state's entire gas supply. The resulting gas supply shortage was devastating to Victoria's economy, crippling industry and the commercial sector. It was a big deal down here because it was the only, it was a single pipeline. Um, in particular hospitality industry, which which used natural gas for cooking. Uh, they reckon the loss to industry during that thing was about 1.3 uh, billion. So, wow. yeah, natural gas is also used in Victoria for cooking, water heating, and home heating. Well, so not anymore. Well, <laughs> not yeah. And many Victorians endured 20 days without gas, hot water, or eating. They they came back on the 14th of October. Many Victorians were outraged and mm. upset to discover only minor compensation on their next gas bill. They only got 10 bucks back. Or we only got 10 bucks back.
0: I, I, heard, I heard it was Dan Andrews' fault.
1: Yeah, no. Look, this this is during the the reign of Jeff Kennett. Who, look, depending on which side of the aisle you're, you're on, was either um, a, a good bloke or or a bastard. So. Well,
0: I mean, do we have Dan Andrews whereabouts on that day? Because wow, well, still yeah. might have been his fault.
1: What, was that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, can you? Oh, god, can you imagine? And I, I distinctly, I distinctly remember. Um. One of the things that was was happening there was because you couldn't have gas. It, it, we, we were sort of needing to have cold showers for a couple of of weeks, and there was just there was just outcry. And Kenneth, candidate who was in who was in charge, and I can't remember his background. He had cadets or something, or else. I'd I'd yeah, he was one of those, as a lot of politicians in fairness are, one of those very sort of self disciplined people, but. Yeah, so the leader, the leader of the, the state came out and basically basically hooked into people for having a whinge about um, having to have a cold shower and basically look suck it up. It's only going to be for a bit and stop your whinging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just I just remember it always amused me that instead of this um, instead of this you know, sympathetic, oh you poor things, yes, we're doing them both. It was, it was shut up, just live with it for a bit. We're getting it <laughs> sorted. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, September 26th on 1983, Australia wins the America's Cup. Uh, that ended the New York Club's uh, – oh, well, actually, let me see if you can let, – that's a, a slight trivia question. So Australia, w- two wins the America's Cup, ending the New York Yacht Club's what-year domination of the race?
0: Oh how many years?
1: How many years, yeah.
0: Oh a long time. Like <laughs> No, because the America's Cup, so um In Australia the America's Cup isn't like that big of a deal anymore, I don't think. No, but it
1: seems to have faded.
0: Yeah, I've got family in New Zealand and the New- the America's Cup is like huge over there. Um and I'm sure I'm sure it started in like I want to say, like, the 1800s. I'm pretty sure it was, like, before, you know, the turn of the century sort of thing. So, I don't know. How long did they dominate for? Probably yep, 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 probably yep. Six, 60 years, 60, 70 years. You're, the fact you just said that makes me think maybe longer, maybe, like, a 100 years. I don't know. Yeah, very good.
1: 132-year domination. 132 ro- years. Yes, oh, yeah, God. Exactly.
0: But was it, my question would be, because if it was, like, during the 1800s and, like, the early 1900s, I wonder if it was actually held, like, it was probably held in America, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's called the America's Cup, right? So it's kind of like, yeah. oh, Hotel well. advantage. Yeah, and who else is coming? Like, you know what I mean? So. Um, yeah, it's, it's it, like
1: it w- saying that you're, you're, you're the, the winner of the, um, uh, the the American football is the world champion. He's like, well, yeah, exactly. you it's are
0: like, technically. But- technically, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or the winner of the AFL grand final yeah. is <laughs> yes. the world champion of AFL. It's like technically, yeah, but <laughs> you don't, don't brag too much about it. I know now the America's Cup does sort of, it's more of an international competition and it moves around yeah. the world. I don't think it's held every year though. I think it's every few years. Yeah. Um, a bit like the Olympics. So I don't know if that's always been the case though. Um, and yeah, it's a big deal. And these, these, these boats, I don't want to say ships cause they're not that big, but they are very impressive. Um, and I think they cost a stupid amount of money these days. Oh, it's all, ridiculous. you know, it's all carbon fiber and the, all the rest of it. So, um, titanium and carbon fiber and all that. Um, so no, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um,
1: so, something that we could use uh, Australian-produced alloy for, alloy for.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um now, you find John- the church? I did. So the first church in Australia was in Sydney, uh, in Bly and Hunter Streets, in Johnson Stray- Square specifically, uh, and it was an Anglican church because, of course, ah, it was an English wow. colony. So. Yep. The first church was uh, Church of England Anglican, uh, started by a clergyman called Richard Johnson, and the first church actually burnt down. <laughs> oh, it burnt down on the first of October, seventeen
1: ninety-eight. Much to um, the
0: appointment of Dick Johnson. Exactly. Exactly. You this, can't is, this is this
1: for one appendage and may as well be named <laughs>
0: twice. Well, I mean, there's a certain irony about a church being burnt down or struck by lightning or something like that, isn't there? So um so there you go. Yeah. I mean it doesn't exist anymore, obviously. Um there is a sandstone like obelisk standing there with a plaque. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so
1: yeah. Anyway, after all well, that, well, well, we'll reasoned.
0: Yeah, okay. after all that, I need a beer. All right. This is the 4x bottle top question, and this did not come from a bottle top. This came from a road sign. In oh. uh, in Australia, well, at least in Queensland, I'm sure other states do this too, uh, they put uh, like trivia questions on the side of the road as you're driving along. Kind of give your mind something to do, something to think about. Oftentimes it's about the local area or... Some some general Australian sort of question, Uh, and as I was coming back from camping yesterday, that they do regularly change the signs. So the questions, uh, I think they do it maybe once or uh, uh, sort of once every month or every two months or something like that. So it it is generally uh, updated, which is cool. Um, And this one was, what do you call a baby echidna?
1: Oh. Damn it! For our our
0: international listeners that don't know what an echidna is, uh, I'd I'd urge you to Google it. But basically, it's like a porcupine.
1: Damn it! Like a porcupine, really? Well, sort of. It's a spike. It's a spiky little bugger. It's a spiky little bugger. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's probably the
0: closest thing. Um, I
1: have heard this uh,
0: kind of like a big hedgehog. I guess there you go. Is that better?
1: Look,
0: uh, I feel like they're more like a hedgehog than they are a porcupine. I guess
1: visu- visually, uh, why do I? Know? I'm... Don't don't give me any hints. I'm sure I can.
0: Yeah, now uh, that I Google porcupine, joey. nah, it's not a joey. Now oh. that I Google now that I Google porcupine, they're way more like a hedgehog. They're like a big hedgehog rather than a porcupine. It's
1: not. A, it's not a joey. Damn it. I thought because would, um, would you like are another guess? Su- I will have another guess because my soup hedge uh, um, hedgehog's shit. <laughs> echidnas are marsupials, aren't they? They got they got a little pouch. I sure hedge. Uh, God, I keep so. saying hedge. He was throwing in there, but echidnas are. Um, I'm sure they're. Okay, that's why I thought it was a yes, jelly. Damn, they I are. thought I was going so to nail who-
0: it. Echidnas and platypus are the only living mammals that lay eggs. So it's not it's oh, not oh,
1: oh I know, I know, because I it's a puggles. A puggle, that's it. Oh, well because because I nicknamed a mate of ours who we go hunting puggles because he did something and I I I said I you can be really you can re, be really soft, but sometimes on the outside you can be a real prick. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> so he's a Puggles. Puggles, yes.
0: Puggles oh. is a great nickname for a person, by the way. Oh. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, yes, they're a. Uh, they lay eggs just like platypus. Platypuses. Platypi. Uh They belong they're not to a egg-
1: marsupial. They're monotreme. No, they're just a just monotreme. As you said that,
0: yeah, right. monotreme. Uh which is also a fun word to say. So. On that bombshell, oh, congratulations just, oh, on, just to be-
1: ID. Just before you throw to that that bombshell, just to throw in a little bit of do 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 do. Uh, you mentioned that that thing about the the sign on the, uh, the the road. I can't remember the the lead into that, but the, just think of that hunting trip. And that thing reminded me we'd gone on one hunting trip, and uh, there's a bloke we used to go with. He was a he was a, a, a Greek greek bloke that we used to to stir up yeah he was multi-generational so he wasn't you know he just had greek heritage and asked him about um one of our mates was doing a a crossword and it said what's the last letter of the the greek alphabet and he didn't know and i think our uh, mate had said something like oh is it do you think it's Z Tony? he says yeah yeah that's that's what it is he said no it's not your banana it's bloody omega Two minutes later, we pulled over to the side of the road to have a, a pee in the, in the middle of nowhere, and I mean you can look it up on Google Maps wherever it is at, at, to get a bit of a reference, and there was a signpost that had directions to Alpha, Zeta, and Omega and freaked us out a bit.
0: That is a bit <laughs> – yeah, there you go. There's a lot of very strange named places in Australia. Um and I guess if you were going to use the Greek alphabet, you may as well just run with it
1: and name we a bunch would of Pull over! It just after that conversation was uh, was pretty yeah, surprising.
0: Bit, that is a bit freaky, isn't it? So
1: sorry. Go on with your wrap up.
0: That's a better bombshell. So, on that bombshell, <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback for suggestions or topics, please get in touch with us on the r Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit, subreddit at proton.me. We'll just be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review, and as it helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of australia talks and remember at r slash australian we are australia thank you and tell your mum that i love her
1: (laughs) see you dk see ya